Bible says the message of the cross is foolishness. 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 Foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Guys, welcome to the Foolishness Podcast. This is Brian Sumner. Thank you for tuning in. It has been amazing. We've been doing so many episodes, getting the word out there, encouraging people. You know, and I'll just be open and honest, I mean, as we should anyway, but being a skateboarder for so many years and traveling the world, it's amazing seeing so many of you who are like my age, who, you know, 35, 40, 45, we were in the skate world and many of you were raised in the faith and then kind of went off into the world. And then after I came to faith, someone shared my testimony and what God did. And you've navigated your way back into like, well, okay, who has God done a work in, in the skate community? And so now to hear that many of you who have your own, you know, families, kids, lives, and some have wrestled with this, wrestled with that, to hear that God is using even some of these podcasts to encourage you. That was the goal. You know, I primarily preach and teach at different churches, travel for evangelism, but the heart of really a podcast or something like this is to encourage people to both come to the knowledge of the saving grace and mercy of God through Jesus. Thank you, Lord. But also to then get planted in a local church and community as I did when I came to faith, as many of you have done or need to. Hebrews says, don't forsake gathering together. So, so I want to jump into something very specific today. And what do I mean by that? Why do I say guys? Well, what I mean by that is men. I want to jump into some kind of a practical study for men, a study that I had shared about a month ago at our men's ministry at the home church branches here in Huntington Beach, a very known verse in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where Paul writing to that church tells them, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. This verse, act like men, and this is a verse that we jumped in many times over the past few weeks. We'd unpacked each of those things, and maybe we'll do that and unpack all the things that Paul lists there. But in all honesty, if we think about this verse, act like men, this is a verse that could cause many to shrug their head, to stand back in shock, as by telling people today to act like men could offend the masses. But biblically, only a man can act like a man. Even this idea today that men and women are meant to be in some sort of a competition, leading them to live in opposition of one another. Just think about where that idea comes from. Does that come from God? Is God a God of disorder and division? Or did he create man and woman in his image and unity? God made man and woman to complement one another, to live alongside one another. And this isn't controversial. This is Bible. Radically, though, the NIV leaves out that verse, act like men. And when it's believed today that only 4% of proclaimed Christians hold a 100% biblical worldview, I could see why. But if we were to hone on this act like a man part, I was to ask you, who is the ultimate man? Who would you say? Because the answer is and always will be Jesus. And for us, wherever you were raised by whoever, with whatever background or standard for a man is Jesus. Because when Paul says act like a man, that means act like Jesus. Jesus is the man. And so today, as I did that day with those men, I want to talk about how Jesus acted. Where did his ability and power come from? How did he react to things in life? How did he walk this earth? And how are we called to walk? 
Because though he was God, he did choose to have his walk play out a certain way, meaning he modeled for you and I how we should expect our lives to be lived and empowered. And by empowered, I mean by the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, in Acts 1.1, Luke writes to his friend Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, meaning Jesus's ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, Acts 1.1, he writes to Theophilus saying, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach through the Holy Spirit, literally that Jesus himself was empowered, enabled, literally anointed by the Holy Spirit in the Jordan. That image where John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God, here comes Jesus. That moment in time where John would baptize Jesus and we see God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, descending in the form of a dove. And then, of course, what takes place with Jesus? He's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, where he rebukes him. Matthew 4, it is written, man doesn't live on bread alone, but the word of God. Then we find Jesus in the synagogue, fulfilling the Isaiah prophecies, opening the scroll literally before their eyes, reading what we read in Luke 4 that today these scriptures are fulfilled. Whoa, Jesus, what do you mean? You've walked into the synagogue. You're telling us that this prophecy is fulfilled by you, a Jewish carpenter. What was it? These scriptures are fulfilled. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And then Jesus lists his ministry, his call, his purpose, which really you have to see if you read those verses in Luke 4, where Jesus unpacks the call to ministry, all of us as believers fulfilled that call. He fulfilled his call, but he's continuing to live that out. And if you look at that list, that is what the church is meant to do, what we are actively doing in the world. And so for us as the body of Christ, as Jesus is the head, we have been left here still walking the earth, going empowered by who? The same Holy Spirit. See, in Acts 1-8, we're reminded of Jesus's words. Luke tells us, reminds us that Jesus told them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be witnesses unto me. And he lists the places they're going to go in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth, which is exactly what we see them doing in the book of Acts. Also, this is what is still happening today through us, all believers. And so, because that same spirit that is in Jesus is now in us. I mean, Jesus was coming to fulfill all of these prophecies, but there was a prophecy about the promise of the Father, the gift of the Father that would be the Holy Spirit. Even John the Baptist saying, I baptize with water, but another is coming after me that will baptize with what? The Spirit of God. And so for you and I today, men, as I told them, Our call is not just to be forgiven, to be born again and sealed, but as we now go, we are called to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, demonstrating the characteristics even as Jesus did. And if we are honest, I was listening to a preacher the other day in his 60s at least, a man I've listened to for years. He began his sermon by talking about how the longer he's been a Christian, the more he's been humbled by the ways he's missed it, by the ways he's fallen short, by the ways he's struggled. And that as a young man, he dug into those old books and the studies and the sermons of the Puritans, men of faith that he was sure he would follow in their footsteps. He would have everything together, that he would have lived this super holy life, if you like. And he viewed his life on this graph 
where he starts off here at the bottom and the graph goes higher and higher and higher. And the older he gets and the deeper he gets in his faith, the deeper he gets, his life is so much more perfect and holy. And don't get me wrong. The scriptures do say, be holy as I am holy, be perfect. But that word properly translated implies that we are bent towards God, focused on God. Even the woman caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. I don't think she returned to a life of adultery. Was she ever jealous? Did she ever struggle? Is it not always a work? And the point for this preacher was that this work of sanctification, once we come to faith, how God leads us, it isn't always as we expect. I'm not talking about our living in sin and running to this place and that place. But the reality is, as we come to faith, what we see is God's power at work in us. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who directs us along this way. And what this showed him was that his contribution to his faith, just like for you and me, men, is still just filthy rags. And really what he had learned in these 60 or so years was that God's grace and mercy was at work in his life every day. That God's grace and mercy is what really brings him comfort as he depends upon it all the more as his life unfolds. I'm not talking again about his living in sin, but the constant in his life, the one thing he is sure of is that he is dependent upon God and will be till the day he dies. And this is kind of like if we do anything for long periods of time. That as we go around the same mountain, we see our patterns, we see our struggles, we see our blind spots. Just like in skating for me, I see where I am strong or weak or tricks I'm better at or not. In jujitsu, how I'm going to be the one getting choked out or that person's going to be the one getting choked out. For you, it could be art, whatever you do, a pastime, a hobby, who knows? But we see our blind spots and that was the gentleman's point was that the older he's got, the longer he's walked in the Lord, he saw his struggles greater than ever. And where I wanted to go with this is to share with you, as I share with the men that day, is to know that our journey isn't just about getting everything right. As in, well, by the time I'm 60, by the time I'm 50, by this year, by this age, by this circumstance, I'll have white knuckled it so much that this religious walk now, even though I'll be red in the face, I'll be holy. That's not the Bible. The Bible is if you are really in Christ, born again of the spirit, he is leading you. And in that leading, though you may struggle, don't aim to. You should be growing and maturing in the things of God. And my point before those men that day, unawares, they would all be kind of slighted by the politics of the day or some of the frustrating events that had happened in their life. What was it I was about to challenge them with that I'm challenging all of us men and women, if you're listening, it's still a verse for you too. What is it that we should look at in our life, whether we're 20, 60, 120, and say, God, what is the evidence that you are at work in my life? And what should I be looking to express every day as I walk with you? And we know the answer to this. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And see, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit so casually, but you ever think about what takes place for this to happen? You see, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit shows up because a seed is planted. And when a seed is planted, there's growth, there's a ripeness, there's a maturity. And in all honesty, you guys probably know more about fruit than me. I mean, coming from Liverpool, we had plenty of football, you know, and martial arts, and it was a eclectic city, but we didn't know too much about fruit. But what do even I know about fruit? What I know about fruit is that before there is any fruit, there needs to be a seed that is planted and takes root. And for you and I as believers, that seed was planted upon salvation. 
when we believed. In fact, in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1.13, he tells the believers early on, in him, meaning Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So for the believer, when you believe, as the Bible says, you cannot confess Jesus as Lord unless by the Spirit of God. When we believe to the man in that ministry that morning as believers, to you, if you were a believer, to you, if you've not yet believed and are going to believe, on the moment that you believed, the Holy Spirit was doing a work in you, and that was a planted seed. And so what does that seed do? It grows and it takes roots, just like how the disciples spent time alone with Jesus, withdrawing with him daily, asking the questions, fumbling over the way to do things. Like Paul, who spent time alone with Jesus, or like us, the seed is planted, that's salvation. But as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we wrestle through certain matters. And I like to think of that picture as the seed is planted, the roots are growing, it's dark down there in the ground, we could say for us, that new heart. Here it comes. And as we grow in the Lord, we see that fruit of the person of the Holy Spirit ripening. We see it taking root. We see it growing out into the world through us. Because just like a seed that is deep in the ground, out of sight, needing water, we need to walk in the living water of Christ that's constantly poured out daily and helps us to grow and bear that fruit. That as that seed grows, we should see a growing resemblance in various ways as we represent who? Jesus. And I know it's easy to generalize this as in, oh yeah, I've been a believer for 20 years and people will occasionally see this and see that. But for me, as I hit 43 just this past month, as I've been going to those men's groups many times now since I've been a believer, since I was what, 24, I thought, okay, Lord, what is the fruit in my life? Not of the works. Works are there, amen. Faith will produce works if we are in Christ. But what is the fruit? How am I as a follower of you, dad, Abba, father? How am I in loving my wife? How am I in loving my kids? How am I when my grandkids come along? What kind of grandpa will I be? And I say this because as I was unpacking these verses to share with the men very casually that day, I mean, we unpack for 10, 15, 20 minutes, and then we converse for 20 minutes, and then we pray for 10 minutes. But if I was to stop and say, Lord, what is the fruit in my life? Counting the cost, where am I? And remember you guys, they have been getting into it a bit in a good way, not a bad way, but saying, wow, politics here, this person is thinking this, this person's doing that, a nation this, a nation that. Guys, here's the wrestle. We're living in America where we are defined, sadly, by God, nation, guns. You might not realize this to some of my friends, you know, in different places here and there, but to my family in England who's never even seen a gun, their picture of Christianity that's been sold to them by the world is that we care about God, then we care about our land, then we're going to protect it with our guns. And my pastor gave a great sermon not so long ago where he said, the image we are presenting when that idea is pitched, that this is what Christians are like, this is what American Christianity is like, is the idea is we love our neighbor until they do something we don't like. We love our neighbor till they oppose where we live, till they oppose what we have, till they come against us. Then it's God, nation, guns. You have to ask yourself the question, I've said it many times, is it about the nation or the kingdom? 
Is it about you and defending your property and all that you have? And I'm not saying you shouldn't die for your spouse, protect your kids, stand up for what is right and true. But what I'm saying is Jesus didn't send the disciples to defend Jerusalem. There will be a new Jerusalem. He didn't send us to defend the earth. We are here that no matter what someone does and comes against us, we're called to bear witness, to bear fruit. And so I asked the men that day, what would you do if that politician was in this room or that person is pushing this or the person who said that to you? How would we operate seeing as how we are talking about the fruit of the spirit? Amen. And I don't need to go very far to tell you that we only need to read Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, which was actually one of the verses that kind of led me to the faith where I realized, wait, this is what it's like to live in the world without Christ, without this Holy Spirit person that I'd never really heard of. So that was to read to you Galatians 5 for just a moment. Just just hear this out because Paul writes to the believers there and he says this, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Meaning all that is written in the Old Testament, you could say the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, it's fulfilled in this one command. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Paul. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's fulfilled in love. He says in verse 15 of Galatians 5, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by one another. So I say, here's the call. Here's the mission. Okay, Paul, how should we live? when politics are crazy, when the world's crazy, when we're crazy. So I say, walk by the spirit, there's the call. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Meaning we're living in this world where the flesh, the carnality, Brian, the old man, wants to live this way, and that never goes away. But to the Spirit of God who is now in me, as we read Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit is upon you. He was given on the day of Pentecost. He's not a thing or in it. He is a person. You can grieve him, ignore him, be empowered by him. I'm led by the Spirit, as Romans 8.14 says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. That's the call, because then I am not under the law. How so? Because you were not under the law only because you have been washed in the blood of Jesus, forgiven, born again into the kingdom. So I've walked away from the law. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the commands of God. Why? Because when we become a Christian, we are in Christ, forgiven. God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit. Now as we live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying, this is who you are. Remember, the Bible is written to the church, we could say in the New Testament. The letters are written to believers. So Paul says, don't live this way under the flesh and the old man law. And in verse 22, he says, but here it comes. But the fruit, that which we're talking about today and to the men in that men's study, but the fruit, the carpos of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amazingly, he lists nine different kinds of fruit, expressions, ways that we can express God's love, even as Jesus did. And notice he didn't say fruits, but fruit. There aren't fruits of the spirit. These are all expressions of the fruit of the spirit that when you came to faith, that seed was planted, it began to grow the fruit of the spirit. 
Verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since then, we live by the Spirit of God. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. So all I want to do for a moment, men, is unpack the fruit of the Spirit. And what I mean by that is the fruit of the Spirit is love. And honestly, as I think about love now, in my 40s, my perspective has changed. It was always this kind of passion that you have for certain people growing up, you know, your family. Well, I'm born, and that's my mom, and that's my dad, and this is my family and my cousins. And then, okay, this is a really close friend, so I guess I love them. Then maybe the girl you first like, and you're like, is this love? Then, you know, there's romance and passion. You fall in love. There's the wife, and you love your kids. All these things, all these people you become close with that make it feel like home that you are secure with. But the amazing thing is that as life unfolded, It had a kind of way of witnessing to me in the midst of all of this. And this has honestly changed my perspective on love, that it's not just loving these people, loving people who do me good, who I interact with, that really have been around so much. How could I not love them? The people that make my moments better, but it's this act of obedience. It's this act of choosing to love people wherever they are. I do even mean those people who are closest to us. I mean, think about loving our wives. I mean, for me, who wasn't a believer, married, had a son, fought with that woman like crazy. We were divorced and separated, didn't know the Lord. I came to faith. I witnessed to her. We were remarried, had two more children. It'll be 22 years this December. Amen. God restored our marriage. Great. We now love each other. We did prior. But now as believers, we really love each other. But does that mean I don't have to put so much more effort into loving her? Does it not mean she's going to challenge me at times or say things at times or frustrate me at times? Does it not mean for you that your wife is sometimes going to say things to you that no man would be able to say and get away with it? You wouldn't be around them the same way or you'd put them in their place. What do I mean by this? Well, even in Genesis, you think about it, 316, the NLT, when man and woman have fell, one of the things God says is part of the case for a woman is that your desire will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. What he's saying is that God put Adam in the garden, brought Eve alongside of him, and man is called to lead, direct, love, protect, be willing to die for his family. But in that picture of Eve coming alongside, fulfilling her role alongside of him, as his rib goes out, it returns. There she is, covered and protected, loved and romanced under his arm. Even in that, there's a rebellion. And likewise, I could say to the men today, do you wake up every day, even if you're a pastor, even if you're living this supposed holy life, are you just like, God, I just want to do everything you want at all times of the day? The whole joke that people aren't even believers till 1030 when they've read their Bible and drank their coffee. I mean, it sounds funny, but I'm talking about love. Are we as men just, God, we want to serve you in everything at all times? You know your flesh. Paul talks about it. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. That's the flesh, the wretched man that we are. But likewise, your wife doesn't wake up and say, whoa, my husband told me last night that I'm just called to come alongside him, never challenge anything. Got it. No. Every day when she wakes up, there's part of her, the flesh, that doesn't want to listen to you, doesn't want to take direction at time, doesn't want to come into agreement. And likewise, for you and your wife, don't we see that in our kids? Then my wife and I just come in, hey, kids, you've got this idea. Okay, mom and dad, video games are off. This is a way, that's a way. Well, listen, and no, 
Don't take that as disrespect if there's a woman listening, but man, I think you get what I'm saying. The call to love, walk in the fruit of the spirit, love. We need to love our wives in that sense. We need to love our kids in that sense. I mean, think about it. Our kids will never fully understand the level of love and sacrifice that we have towards them until they're in our shoes. They'll never understand, like for me, understanding my dad who would get up at five or six in the morning, be gone to five at six at night. That was just dad leaving the house, coming back. No, that was sacrifice. That was love. That was dying to self, living for us and likewise for our kids. It's the same. Loving our family who, because they're family, they have so much access to us. They could text me whatever right now, Mm -hmm. say whatever to me, overstep boundaries, but I'm called to walk in love. Friends, people were around. I mean, nowadays with everyone's idea and opinion, there's a selfishness, you know, including my own preferences. I mean, how hard can this be to love on people? Well, we're just going to tell it like it is. No, there's no telling it like it is, but the Bible. And even for me, as someone that's mostly around Christians, when I'm at events or churches, or even at times at home church, people will ask me questions about what I think about this or that. So they're coming to me and I don't want to just give you this biased answer. So I'll give you three or four theological thoughts on how to approach this. And then if they don't like what I'm saying politically or emotionally, or I'm way more conservative than they may be in my theological thinking, then they can get frustrated. But my point in all of this is that love isn't just a feeling or even an emotion. It's a constant choice with purpose. I know I love my wife, but I'm choosing to love her each day. I've talked many times about in the Song of Songs in the Old Testament, how the woman is stirred up. She's thinking things about the man and the maidservants say, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Don't arouse or awaken. Ahava this love that you put on someone until you're married. Daily, I put that love on my wife. Daily, I love my children. Daily, if there's opposition, I'm going to choose to love this person as best as I can. If I feel the flesh rising up, no. If it's politics, again, as I'm saying this, because it's it's current today. If it's that crazy uncle or that in-law that doesn't like you, it's whatever it may be. Our love cannot be based on feeling or emotion, or at times we are going to fall short and blow our witness. First John 3.16, we're told by John, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us, because Jesus made a choice, because he looked at you and me and said, yes, I'm going to go. But we also are called to lay down our lives for others. Romans 5, 8, one of the most famous verses that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy. Joy plays right off of how we understand love because if I miss love, then life's going to feel like a burden. Dealing with people, dealing with myself, wrestling through things will all feel like a burden. But if I understand that God is at work in all situations, then my joy will come from knowing that this sacrificial love I'm giving, this ahava in the Hebrew or this agape in the Greek, it has a purpose. And it gives me a sense of being content, of my life being intentional. And I know as a man that we think no one gets us. I told those men, I know you feel like your wife doesn't get you. Your kids don't get you. The people that work don't get you. I understand this. But guys, we are made to go out ahead, to be willing to die into the battle. And I know we wish everyone could understand, but you know who understands? 
God does. God understands our call because he made it that way. I mean, do you want it any other way where you're the first line of defense? You're the one to call to go to the cross first, get on your knees first, pray first, fight for your family as the priest is the home first. I don't think so. I don't want someone else stepping into battle for me. And what did Paul say? Act like men. And see, we don't get affirmation this side of eternity, but what we get is something better. We get God. We get God in the midst of our chaos and struggle. He is still present. And as I said, this joy is not a joy that comes from emotions and circumstances, because then when circumstances change, so does our joy. Our joy, man, has to come first and foremost from the Lord because it is finished, he said, because Jesus did it all joy. Thank you, Lord, because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Thank you, Lord. Even Romans 14, 17, again, I'm using Paul a lot today. He tells us, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, meaning it's not in comfort. It says, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We don't manufacture this kind of joy, he's saying. It's not something you can go grab a hold of or make better by this and that, but no, it is a fruit. John 16, 20, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament but the whale will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Verse 22, he goes on and says, therefore, though you now have sorrow, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Though in this world, the disciples Jesus is talking to there, you're going to face some hard times, 300 years of persecution for the early church, more people going through persecution even to this day because the gospel's gone to more places. Guys, there will be an eternal joy, but this side of eternity, you can walk in joy. You can walk in the work that I have done, the power of the Holy Spirit, even today. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. And what do we get next? Peace. I think as men, we really need to take this to heart because how we navigate life's choices is the biggest witness to watching eyes. How I navigate the state of the world, all that has unfolded the past 22 years in my marriage, 21 years from my oldest son, 15 years from my daughter, 12 years from my youngest, my family around me, you could say even in England, and, and my, my church family who then looks to my life or the world, how I walk in peace is the biggest witness because it points to where my security is. See, as our parents pass, they watch our kids. How does dad handle this? As we age, as we struggle with our own health, they are watching. As the nation turns and the world unfolds, I mean, where do we find our peace? Men act like men. Well, where did Jesus find it? It wasn't in playing chess with Rome. I mean, Jesus is the greatest there's ever been, always will be. He had more wisdom than Solomon, obviously. We didn't plan all these plots and schemes to overthrow Rome as the disciples thought he was going to do, or didn't put in place all these plans to avoid the oncoming persecution for his disciples. He wasn't wrestling with the world. Again, politics and the temporary, no. He made radical statements like in Matthew 26, 53, telling those hearers that day, do you not think I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus's peace came from who he is and our peace comes from who he is. He abides in us. It is him in us and through us. And guys, listen, whatever you are going through, whatever you're facing, whatever's unfolding, 
Do you realize what Jesus has done? Not just the cross, but what access that has given to us. In John 14, 27, Jesus says to me, to you, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He gave us his peace, the same peace that he could walk through this life, going to the cross, being beaten, spat upon, his beard pulled. He gives us that peace. He goes on and says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Meaning whatever's going on, men, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Where's your peace, man? Our peace isn't in our health. It isn't in our nation, our physical appearance, or our safety. Is that where your peace is? Because by definition, peace, it is. The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot. Peace is salvation and being assured of it. It's being content with its earthly lot. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. And it goes on. Long suffering, patience. And here's how that love plays into peace. As we walk it out patiently and letting things play out, and this for me went from immediate situations to weeks, months, years, meaning this is our whole lives, this looking forward to all the fruit we will bear, the realizing that our long-term walks bear more fruit than immediate control, because the Bible says godly contentment is great gain. Am I content with whatever's unfolding in front of me, no matter how radical? James 1.4 tells us, very famous verse, let patience finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Colossians tells us in 3.12, therefore, as the elect of God, Brian, church, whoever you are, holy and beloved, yes, Lord, how shall we live? Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Because God has saved you, redeemed you, you're filled with the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, yes, Lord, to England, to Liverpool, to California, to wherever gospel is continuing to go, put on what? Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Ephesians 4.2 says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bear with one another in love. 1 Timothy 1.16, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me, first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for eternal life. Paul's telling Timothy, his son in the faith, that through the work of God, because Christ in him, Paul's goal is to live out this life patiently with longsuffering to demonstrate the very patience of Christ. Kindness. Kindness is a moral goodness, integrity. This is the kind of kindness that implies laboring with people, laboring with grace for people, even as Jesus did. And this kind of kindness is this example to the world. Practically, we can contemplate how to react. I mean, for me, I can think about this, like, how do I react to these supposed Christians in the world right now who are hijacking the gospel, gaslighting people, shaming people, dividing them? This gospel where no one talks about sin and repentance and redemption. So no one is thinking, wow, Lord, this is the grace and mercy of God. You died in my place because of the way I've lived. I mean, what is my response to that? What is the fruit? Am I flying the banner? Is it a witness to my family, to my friends, to the world? Am I kind? 
Second Timothy 2.24 says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be kind to all. Kind to all. I mean, what if we just made that practical practice? What if we were in that room with that person who opposed us, hates us, is challenging you in what you believe about this and that? Am I being kind, Lord? That person at the DMV, that person on the bike ride, that person at work, am I being kind, Lord? And I wasn't saying all this to condemn the men in that men's group, but after having some deep conversations the past few weeks about the state of the world, where's our kindness? And didn't our mom's trainers, teachers tell us to be kind? Didn't the school teachers back in the day say to be kind? Then we have goodness, kindness, then goodness. This should be our response to everyone. This is how we react to people. Have I been kind? Am I being good? Is my desire, is that the goal as I'm serving, as I'm reaching, as I'm loving, I'm forgiving? God, am I being good towards them? Was that a good thing to do? Was that a good response, a good deed, a good action? Because the Bible calls us to have childlike faith, but it doesn't tell us to be childish. We're meant to mature. Even Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, he's reminded of the way they live their lives when he says, I'm remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor, of love, goodness, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm remembering before the Lord undoubtedly in times of prayer, in times of praise, God, the work you've done in the people in the church in Thessalonica, as they walk in faith, but they also labor in love, God, and goodness and steadfastness. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness. And then he goes on, Paul gives us this other fruit, faithfulness. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. And guys, man, let's get serious, a bit more militant as we like it. We think about Adam, he's placed in the garden with a call to oversee with an agenda. Sadly, Adam bailed. He wasn't faithful. When the serpent showed up to tempt, Eve was right there. Adam was right here. He didn't step in, didn't die to self, didn't fight for her, didn't say, no, Satan, I've got something you can eat of. The word of God says it is written, as Jesus said thousands of years later in Matthew 4, 4, he bailed on being faithful. But for you and I, our faithfulness is the actual call of how we live out this life. And we've got to say something simple. If you have your notepad or your phone, just write down, wow, am I faithful in getting into the word? Am I faithful in meditating on it? Not religious, but do I faithfully get in the word of God so it can be in me? Am I meditating on it? Can I wash my wife in the word of God? Also, Lord, am I led by the spirit of God? Is that seed been planted? Yes, I'm a believer, but Lord, is it getting watered with the things of God? Not just am I a believer. That's great. Praise God. What a work he has done. But am I maturing? Am I growing? Am I eager for the things of God? Because remember, we're talking about bearing the fruit. And I say that because Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and he says, I can't even refer to you as spiritual. I can't even go into the deeper things of God, the meat, he called it, but you're just on the milk. Hey, I'm a believer. Hey, I go to church. Hey, I got a Bible. Hey, I did this. Hey, I went to this camp. Guys, am I faithful? Do I realize that my faithfulness to God is more important than anything else in my life. Job literally talked about his knowing God's call as more important than food. 
How much do I focus on food per day or per week or per month? But is the word of God the things I am tasting of and eating? Think about it if your life is crazy. Someone sent this to you. Your marriage is upside down. You're going through it with your kids. Guys, let's be real. I was going to go to jujitsu this morning, but it's a day after what? Fourth of July, a little bit tired. I rested. But if I would have gone to jujitsu, that would have been an hour or so in a gym. If I went two or three times this week, that is three or four hours of jujitsu. Oh, it's important. It's fun rolling with people. I use it as a ministry tool. It's great being around all these unbelievers who many have come to faith now go to church. Thank you, Lord, for that. But if I'm going to spend three or four or five hours a week doing that, how much time did I put into my marriage this week? How much time did I put into encouraging my kids speaking life? How much time did I put into my getting in the word or sitting with the Lord in prayer or serving him? I say that and you say, whoa, bro, because people generally put less than 15 minutes a day into their marriage. Yet if your marriage changes, who you love changes, where your kids spend time changes, where you live changes, how much finance freedom you have can change. I say that because our faithfulness as a man, as a priest in the home, my pursuing God, my loving my wife, Diana Self, washing her in the word. Am I training up my kids in the way that they should go? Or am I on the milk being a baby, flapping around, not aware? And you say, whoa, bro, chill. No, guys, we need the older men to challenge us. I'm 43. I look to the men who are 50, 60, 70. I go sit with people, let them step on my toes and say, you should be thinking this. You should be thinking that. Why are we always getting advice from the young hip guy who really hasn't lived, who's just got a fat wallet and has just got a big picture agenda and he's probably pursuing the world? Paul tells us the fruit of the spirit is gentleness, gentleness. And in all of this, gentleness should not be viewed as weakness, but strength. It's a choosing to boldly stand in love. And sometimes this can be hard, but it comes from a place of humility and looking to the better good. What do I mean by that? Well, I remember a few months ago, we had this homeless guy who was probably about, you know, 40, him and his dog. And we gather in a big senior center, you know, giant building here in Huntington Beach, the property out here is so much money. So our church is only about 10, 11 years old, young. So the city said, why don't you use this property? And it's beautiful. So, you know, we don't own it. So a lot of times you have people from the park, it's set on a park and homeless people coming in. And so this guy would show up and it's always great. Okay. We can feed the homeless, help the homeless, but most of the people here know the word and have either received it or rejected it, meaning they've got help from people or not. And this guy would come in and he would have all these questions and people would pet his dog, and, but he would always trigger people. He would always come up to the preacher or the person doing something necessary that day and he would always challenge them and bring conflict. And you have to think about a church like this. There's the sheep, there's the goats, there's the wolves. The sheep are those who are getting fed and they want to be there. They want to be part of the body. Their goal is to serve and be humble and grow in the things of God, they would hear what I'm speaking today and say, okay, Lord, I need to walk this out. But then you have the goats. They don't believe they're just there. And there's other things going on with them. But then you have the wolves and the wolves come in and they want to sow discord. They want to tear down. They could be, you know, tools of the enemy, Satan, even reading the scriptures. So this guy would come in and I get done preaching one day and he comes over to me. People are leaving. The next service is going to begin. And he begins to say the craziest things about God and Jesus and crudeness and filth and vulgarity. 
and he's saying the craziest stuff. And I had to just ask him, you know, why are you here? Are you a Christian? Are you part of the body? Is there a reason you're here? You know, I've heard some of the things you've said to my 21-year-old that I was shocked by. I can only imagine if you say some of these things to women. And he stands there kind of gentle, but he says things that are provoking. And as he begins to say things to me, I'm like, look, if my daughter was next to me right now, I'd escort you off the property myself, the things you're saying. And I confronted him that day, as did a bunch of other people. Why are you here? If you're here as a part of the body of Christ, then save us. But if you're going to talk about very graphic things that I won't even say on the air, if you would say this in front of a woman, and as I was sharing this with our men's group, by the way, some of them coughed up and said some of the things they told him, they challenged him with. Long story short, he knows what the gospel is. He knows what the Bible says. He has rejected that. And we want to love on this man. But when you are there just to disgrace, tear down God, say crazy things in the place of worship. There needed to be a standing in strength and confidence, but yet we were gentle. He wasn't dragged off the property. He's free to come back anytime he wants to just be normal in the sense of he's here to engage. He isn't going to get in the way of what's taking place as we are called to lay out a service and minister to people. And see, this is the humble attitude that Christ had. Even though he flipped over tables, even though he confronted those who were bringing judgment, the religious leaders who were misinterpreting the scriptures, you'd hear Jesus say things like, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, meaning they're not getting it. Do as they say, not as they do. He was still gentle in his boldness because he was speaking truth. There was a confidence there. Even in James 121, we're told, Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, wrongdoings, and bad intentions. That wasn't my intention with this guy. I wasn't aiming to be wicked or to hope bad things before this man. There was no bad intentions. My goal was to be gentle. I could take this even further and say the danger within the Christian church, sadly, is when these churches blow up and it's a family that leads or, or one, you know, egomaniac preacher, and there's all this control, all this power. They can just destroy people, however, talk down to people, control people, kick them out of the church, have all these things going on. And you see this. You'll see these, these powerful church families or leaders when it really isn't about Jesus, isn't really about serving people. It's about them and what they're building. And you can look at that and say, there's no gentleness. There's no concern for the sheep. There's no desire to bring priests and unity. You don't even see the fruit of the spirit in their lives. You say, Brian, you're being judgmental. Well, no, I'm confronting here. What I'm telling you is I've seen this. You think about who God used in the Bible. Who did he use most of the time? Shepherds. And I heard, I think it was Eugene Peterson say, if a, if a dog can do your job, meaning a dog is a pretty good shepherd, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Meaning if you are a pastor, minister, leader, don't bully and abuse the sheep as I've seen many a leader do. You should go in love to restore people or speak truth, but still be gentle still have goodness, still have kindness. Paul goes on, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Self-control, and this right here at the end for me is like the final boss. This is the one that can cause the most damage where we can easily see the need to grow. Again, I'm not talking about abiding in sin. Guys, listen, if you're struggling with sin, God isn't going to break your fingers, so you can't type those things into the internet or your phone. If you're taking advantage of this, hiding that, if you're doing these things, the Lord convict you. 
Revelation says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chase. And I hope God does that, wakes you up to your sin. But what I'm talking about is just self-control in general, self-control in the way that we live out the other fruit of the spirit as it bears in our life, as we have ourselves under control. The second Peter 1.5 tells us, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness. Out of all the things we are called to do as a virtue, we need to walk in self-control. Can I look at love and have self-control, joy, peace? Can I look at the struggles with sin and have self-control? You see, I came into that men's study that morning. It was seven o'clock and I'm packing so many crazy things going on as grandpas and dads, as business owners, as people who have lived a certain way under the banner of, you know, the democracy of an American nation and freedom and so forth. Some of the things were crazy. Some of the things that were going on around the world are crazy, but guys, the Bible says we're not to judge the world. Bible tells us we don't judge the world. Instead, we hold ourselves accountable as believers. We judge our brother and sister in love. How are you doing? Are you okay? Where is everything? So as I went in this day and unpacked this fruit of the spirit, it brought up so many amazing things where they said, man, it's just been such a crazy season and the pressure and the way the world's turning. And for you, that could be right where you are. Where are you in your marriage? Where are you in your workplace? Where are you in your kids? Where are you in yourself? Are you seeing fruit of the spirit? Or are you religious and you're white knuckle and you're so legalistic and such a, an OCD perfectionist as I was a skater, you know, learning tricks every day? No. Want to love God? Love our neighbors. Want to be full of the spirit of God? We want to go into all the world, make disciples. You want to bear the fruit of the spirit. And so as we finished that day, you know, my goal was more to invite them into a place of conversation. And though this is a one-way street, I'm talking to you, you're the ones receiving of this. You could sit, meditate, pray on the things of God, of course, not meditate so you don't think, meditate so you think on the scriptures or even what we've talked about. And you could answer for yourself, man, am I mature? Am I on the meat of God or am I on the milk? Have I grown in the things of God? Where am I on the fruit of the spirit? Maybe write those down right next to them where you need to grow. This is a good thing to have to grow. And so we need to ask ourselves as the world turns and maybe our family is shaken at times, something someone did or we did to someone else, where am I? Maybe it's the way you were raised or not raised. Maybe it's the way your kids act or don't act. Maybe, as I said, it's your own issues with sin where you got to say, wow, I got to I got to come clean with some things. Lord, I got to lay this before you. You know already, but Lord, I maybe need to go to a person or confess this or confess that. Maybe it's your political stance or, or you have a control issue because the world has been so crazy to you. You face so much. You just can't deal with not having control of everything. Well, let me just liberate you from that. You don't have control anyway. What did Paul tell us in the beginning? Act like men. Act like men. Adam fled his role of following God, pursuing God, listening to God, covering his bride, tending to what was before him. And what's amazing is we see that in Genesis, but that when they sin, when they fall, God shows up. And what does Adam do? He looks at God and said, it was the woman you gave me. He blames God. And then throughout the text, we see 
for thousands of years, as God is at work in the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, what does God say? Be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, over and over and over, pointing them to the text, pointing them to the law, pointing them to stand on the promises of God, unlike Adam, who didn't stand in the gap as a man for his bride and for all of his future children. That's us. Guys, if you are struggling with stuff today, do you know Jesus? Have you been forgiven? Have you received of the cross? Have you repented of your sins? You see, Adam looked at his bride and said, God, it's your fault. It's her fault. But Jesus looked at his bride, the church, and says, I'm going to die in her place. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, went to the cross. That's why Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam fell, was full of sin, but the second Adam was perfect, Jesus, and he died in our place. And so I hope there's those of you who hear this, come to faith, confess, trust in the Lord, but for the rest of us as men, are we growing in the things of God? How are we living out our life? What are we doing? Are we getting planted in the things God is doing in the local community to live it out? You know what? Our church is probably what? 20, 30 men that show up to that men's group, but only 10% of churches have men's ministries. The next generation from about what? 18 to 30 doesn't get involved a lot. It's the wrong time of the day for them. They're caught up in this, they're caught up in that. Guys, we need to be around men, to act like men, to see how men are living. So guys, I hope this has encouraged you today or ladies who are listening, go share it with some of the men in your life. Is it grandpa? Is it dad? Your husband? I mean, someone you're courting, son, grandson. The goal is to be really practical. You know, we don't want to just come across as funny and entertaining. And is that the goal? No, I want to encourage some people. I want to say, think about this as a man. What are the attributes God has called me to walk in? What are the fruit of the spirit I'm meant to be seeing in my life? And so let me pray. Hey, God, I just pray for the men who are listening, for those who were born into amazing circumstances who feel like literally heaven was at their fingertips. They had the freedom to do this and that, or even God, those who felt like the rug was pulled out from before they were even born. God, you speak life to us every day. We are Ephesians 2.10, your workmanship, and you have a call and a purpose for us to stand and act like men that wherever they are, they would hear your word because you said, my sheep hear my voice. They don't just hear it, God, but they follow. That they would follow you. They would act like men. They would see that fruit. They'd be a leading in pursuing you, a leading in digging into the word, a leading in serving, and God, a leading in repentance. God, I thank you for the opportunity to save you in 2022 as men, the first line of defense, the priest in the home, God, I thank you for wives, for kids, for family, for friends, even for enemies, God, that we get to minister to. John 3.18 says, the world is condemned already, and that, Lord, you would use us, your men, to be strong and courageous, standing in the things of God. Lord, I thank you for listeners, or wherever this may go, whoever may hear, just a brief unpacking of some powerful verses. Thank you, Lord, and for using the Apostle Paul. God, that we would stand on your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, men, any women, this is Brian Sumner. Thanks for tuning in the Foolishness Podcast. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the Apostle Paul tells us, the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 
Thank you for sharing, getting out, letting people know. I'm just here to point the way to Jesus Christ, lift him up. More on me, BrianSumner.net. Thank you for those who pray, even come alongside and support. I've been traveling, doing so much ministry. It's been amazing. There's much more coming up. This is kind of one of the last few little things I do when there's time. Thanks again. God bless you.